I want to tell you a little story that I think will be a good way to start this sermon today. I graduated from high school in 2010. <laughs> I was just making sure y'all are awake out there. No, I, I graduated from high school in 1988, and 10 years after that, in 1998, our class had what all classes have, the 10-year reunion. Well, I can't remember what I was into this, that weekend here, down here in Pasadena, but whatever it was prevented me from going back to East Texas for the reunion. But the next week, I was talking to a friend of mine, and I said, how did the reunion go on Saturday night? And he said, well, John, it went fine. He said, first thing you need to understand is everybody in our class has gained about 15 pounds. He said, that's the first thing you missed. He said, the second thing is, at the end of the evening, these two guys, he told me their name, and I'm not going to tell you their name now because they might be watching this service on streaming. He said, these two guys got into a big argument in the, uh, in the area where we were having the reunion, and it got so heated, he said, John, it felt like we were in high school all over again. He said, they went out to the parking lot, we followed them out to the parking lot, and they had a knockdown drag out right there in the parking lot. And I thought, now I really wish I would have gone back for the reunion because that would have been a good fight. And uh, those were two tough guys, one of them especially, but both of those guys were tough. But when he told me that story, I thought in my mind, I thought, well, that's what those guys were doing 10 years ago when we graduated from high school. They were fighting then, and now it's 10 years later. We're supposed to all be grown up uh, by now, and they're still fighting. And this thought ran through my mind. Some things never change, right? Fought all the way through high school, fought when we graduated, fought at the 10-year reunion, still fighting. Now, this morning, I want to build on that idea, some things never change, and I want to take it one step further, and I want to make a statement that you've probably never heard a preacher make. And when I first make this statement, you're going to, you're going to say, now, John, I just don't know if I agree with that. All I ask you to do is to hear me out, and at the end of this, I think you're going to say, he was right. I agree with what he said. Now, the statement that I want to make is not just for those two guys who got in a fight at our 10-year reunion. I'm taking them off the table. The statement that I'm going to make, it does, I guess, include them, but it includes you and me. It includes the entire human race, and here is the statement. Now, I'm going to tell you before I say it, you're not going to like it, you're not going to agree with it, but hear me out. The statement is this, people don't change. I've been preaching for 32 years, and one thing I have learned is that left to themselves, people don't change. If somebody was a liar when they were 15 years old, the odds are when that person gets to be 35 years old, they're still going to be a liar. If somebody, when they were 22 years old, newly married, starting their married life, if that husband was sporadic in his church attendance when he was 22, he will more than likely be sporadic in his church attendance when he is 52. People don't change. If people have an addiction of some kind, alcohol, drugs, gambling, pornography or something, and that addiction has taken over their lives when they were a young adult, I'm telling you, more than likely, that addiction will be with them all through life. People don't change. Left to themselves, people don't change. If somebody, when they were in high school or college, was very judgmental, very demeaning, holier than thou, always looking down on someone, if that's how they were, 
as a young person, more than likely, that's what they'll be like when they get to be an old person. People don't change. Now, I know some of you are thinking, John, this is the most discouraging sermon introduction I've ever heard in all my life. I thought that the purpose of preaching was to say that people can change. Well, you can change, but what I'm saying is left to yourself, people don't change. They are what they are. So there's the statement, whether you like it, whether you agree with it, that's the statement I'm making. I believe it. People don't change. Now, if that were a sentence, and it could be, it has a subject and a verb, let's take off the period and let's extend the sentence. And let's add this word. People don't change unless, everybody say unless. People don't change unless, now this word unless begins to give us some hope now. So if you're here today and you say, well, you know, I do have an addiction. Or you're here today and you're saying there's something in my life that needs to be changed. You're here today say, I do struggle telling the truth. I do struggle being holier than thou. I do struggle using bad language. And when you started out saying people don't change, I was so discouraged. But now you've thrown in the word unless, that gives me hope, unless what? Two things. Unless, number one, they want to change. You will never change if you don't first of all want to change. Do you remember in John chapter 5, Jesus went up to the, the, the man at the pool of Bethesda. He had been paralyzed for 38 years. Imagine that, 38 years unable to walk. And Jesus, looking at this man, intending to heal this man, asked this man what at the very least you would say was an interesting question. At the very most, you might say that's an odd question. It, it, it seems like an unnecessary question. Jesus looked at that man and said this, do you want to be made whole? Why would you ask somebody who's been paralyzed for 38 years if they want to be made whole? Je who wouldn't want to be made whole? Because Jesus knew that after 38 years of being paralyzed, that man had depended on other people to do things for him. And so he, that's, he had no other way to live. He had to live that way. And so Jesus, before he healed this man, he wanted to get an answer from this fella. He said, do you want to be made whole? Do you not only want to get it where you can walk and, and work and now take some responsibility, but do you want to get it where you can live your life and not be dependent on others? Do you want to be made whole? And of course that man did, and Jesus healed that man. But I'm saying to you today, people don't change unless first unless, first of all, they want to change. And secondly, people don't change unless they know how to change. Just because you want it, there are a lot of people who have something in their life and they say, I wish I could change. I want to change that. I, more than anything else, I want to get rid of this habit. I want to change this personality trait. I want to improve in this. I want to change, all right? You can change, if you want to change, and you do, but also if you know how to change. Now, if you'll open your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 20, strange introduction to lead us into this passage of Scripture, but I think it will serve us well. The idea this morning, what we're thinking about is why some people never, ever change. Now, last Sunday morning, we studied the millennium. If you were absent last week, 
we studied about the thousand-year period that will one day come upon this earth after the second coming of Jesus Christ when he will set up his millennial kingdom in Jerusalem and he will rule and reign with a rod of iron and there will be peace on the earth like there's never been. There will be no wars. There will be no conflict. There will be no division. It's going to be a wonderful time. The wolf will lay down with the lamb. The desert will bloom as a rose. I mean, it's going to be a wonderfully peaceful place. We saw last week that water will come out from underneath the temple there in Jerusalem. It will flow down into the Dead Sea, and the fresh waters will bring life to the Dead Sea, and there will be fish and there will be dolphins, and there will be all kind of aquatic life in what is currently a dead sea. And we talked last week how wherever Jesus is, there's life. And so our focus last week was on the millennium and how, how wonderful that period of time will be. One of the things that will make that thousand-year period so wonderful is that at the beginning of it, Satan will be thrown into a bottomless pit, the abyss, the shaft, and he will be bound with a chain and in a bottomless pit for a thousand years. That's, so you've got Satan in a bottomless pit, Jesus on the throne. What else could you have but peace? That's, how, that's why it's going to be so wonderful. At the end of the thousand-year period, interestingly enough, Satan will be released from the bottomless pit. Now let's just pick up reading there, Revelation chapter 20 and in verse number 7. Now, when the thousand years have expired, and so now the millennium is over, Satan will be released from his prison. That's what that bottomless pit is. It's a place where demon spirits are currently incarcerated and will go out. Now, after he's been released, watch what he's going to do, and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. That's just a name for the people that he will deceive. To gather them together to battle whose name, whose number is as the sand of the sea. So what I want you to see is as soon as Satan is released from this bottomless pit, what will he do? He will do what he did thousands of years previously in the Garden of Eden when he first came on the stage of human history. He will begin to deceive people. Think about that. After a thousand years in a bottomless pit, as soon as he is released, what does he do? He goes back doing what he's always done, deceiving the nations. And that's where I'm getting the sermon title this morning, Why Some People Never Change. And what I want to give you today is a fairly long list, about eight, seven or eight reasons why people never change. And you might want to jot these down, or you might just want to think about it and process it as we, as we walk through this list. First of all, I want us to think about this. Punishment doesn't change a person. Satan will have been punished for a thousand years in a bottomless pit, and yet punishment doesn't change a person. You can take a person who has committed a horrible crime. They've broken the law. And they appear before the judge, and the judge finds them guilty, and the judge sentences them, or the jury sentences them, and now they're going to Huntsville, and they're going to be in prison for 20 years. They've broken the law, and that's just what they have to do. And we, ha we thank God we live in a, in a nation where there are laws and where there's order, and so that's what they have to do. What I'm saying to you today is, that person could be in prison for 20 years, 
But that is no guarantee that that person will be any different when he gets out of prison than he was when he went in prison. That doesn't mean punishment is not important. It just means that punishment by itself doesn't change a person. I'll tell you something else it doesn't change a person. Time doesn't change a person. Not only was Satan in this bottomless pit, he was in this bottomless pit for a thousand years. You would think after a thousand years, Satan would have thought to himself, hey, I rebelled against God. It got me kicked out of heaven. I've wreaked havoc on the earth. I have blasphemed the name God. I have encouraged others to rebel against God. I've been up to no good for thousands of years. God has me now in a bottomless pit on my way to hell. Maybe if I will repent, I mean, I'm saying Satan could have thought this. If I'll repent, maybe God will forgive me. Now, we know that Satan's... uh, end was already sealed. His fate had been determined by this point, but it had been determined because God knew that he never would have a change of mind. He never would have a change of attitude. He never would repent. I'm just saying most people, if they were in a bottomless pit like Satan was for a thousand years, most people would say, what do I need to do to get right with God because things are not going very well for me. I think sometimes we have the idea that time changes a person. Friend, just the opposite is true. As we get, you know, just because a person is old or older, that's no guarantee that they're more godly, that they're more mature, that they're more loving, that they're more kind than they were when they were young. No, in fact, we tend to become more of what we already were. Isn't that right? And so if you were kind of a miserable, negative, complaining person, When you were 25, may the Lord have mercy on your family and friends when you get to be 85. Because you're going to just be more of what you were. You're not going to just, time is not going to change you. Time doesn't change anybody. If anything, time changes for the worse. And it makes us more of what we already were. And that's exactly what happened to the devil. Thousand years in a pit, he gets out. What does he do? He goes out to deceive people who are on the earth. He does exactly what he did in the Garden of Eden. Why? Because punishment and time don't change people. Third thing I would say, this is very interesting. Environment doesn't change a person. Sometimes we think, well, if we could just get our kids in a better environment. Well, I would say, if you're a parent, put your kids in the best environments you can find. But just because you put your kids in a good environment, that's no guarantee that your kids are going to turn out right. Environment itself doesn't change a person. Now, we just read that during this time, after Satan is released from the bottomless pit, he's going to go out and deceive the nations of the He's going to deceive people who are living on the earth. Here's the question. Who is he deceiving? I mean, last week we were talking about the millennium and all these saints from the Old Testament, saints from the New Testament, people who had been beheaded after they got saved during the tribulation. This is who's going to be in the millennium. Well, who, he's not going to, the devil's not going to deceive Abraham. He's not going to deceive Isaac or David. He's not going to deceive Peter or Paul. He's not going to deceive you or me. Who will the devil deceive? Now, that's a very good question, and it's a very deep question. And I want to try to answer that question as simply as I can. Apparently, everybody say apparently. And the reason I say apparently, I want to come back in a couple of weeks and deal with that. I will pick up at the word apparently. If I can't remember what to say two weeks from today, just say, John, start out by saying apparently, and then you'll remember. Apparently, at the beginning of the millennium, I mean, after the the rain begins, 
everybody on the earth will be saved. I'm going to come back and deal with that more clearly, but let's just for now say everybody at the beginning of the millennium is saved. Now, who is in the, who, who are these people? You have people who were the people of God in Old Testament times, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they died. By the time the millennium starts, their bodies will have been resurrected. There they are in, uh, back on the earth in their resurrected bodies. Not only will they be there, New Testament Christians will be there. From Bible times, from the last 2,000 years, you and me. There will be with Jesus in Jerusalem in our new resurrected bodies. Not only that, tribulation saints will be there. Those who were saved during the seven-year period of tribulation and were beheaded or in some way killed or died, uh, maybe they weren't killed, but they died, their bodies will have been resurrected, and there they'll be in Jerusalem. And so think about this. Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, tribulation saints, on the earth in resurrection bodies. Now, use your brain here. You know enough of the Bible to know this. Once we're in our resurrected bodies, we will not be able to procreate. In other words, people in resurrected bodies, the Bible says there's no marriage in heaven. Well, no, there's not. People aren't going to be married in heaven. And what's the implication? Well, they all, the implication is people aren't going to be having kids in heaven. You can't have kids once you're in a resurrected body. You're out of your physical body. You're now in a body similar to that of an angel. You can't have kids. But during the millennium, when the millennium begins, there will be people who got saved during the tribulation. Somehow, they did not die. By the grace of God, they lived through it. And so, when the millennium starts, there they'll be on the earth in their physical bodies. They're saved, but they don't have a resurrected body because they haven't died. So, they will enter the millennium in a physical body. And since they're in their physical bodies, many of them will be married, they will be able to have children. And so shortly after the millennium begins, babies will start being born on the earth. Think about it. A thousand years is how long the millennium will last. Did you know that in a thousand years, there could be 30 to 40 generations of people born? <laughs> I mean, children, grandchildren, great, 30 to 40 generations. So people, babies will be born during the tribulation. They will grow up. They'll have babies. They will grow up. They'll have, they're all in their physical bodies. And many of those born during the millennium will never get saved. Their parents were saved. Their grandparents were saved. Their great-grandparents were saved. But here we are 20 or 30 generations later, and many of those people will not be saved. And so when the Bible says that when Satan is released from the abyss, he's going to go out and deceive the people who are on the earth, that's who he'll be deceiving. He can't deceive us. We're in our resurrected bodies. We're in a state now where it is impossible for us to sin. But those who have been born into the millennium in their physical bodies can be deceived. Many of them will be deceived, and that's who it's referring to here. In fact, go back in Revelation chapter 20 and verse number 9. It says, they went out, uh, they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, that's Jerusalem, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And so the devil 
In fact, you look at the end of verse 8 again, it says, He will gather them, that is, those who have been deceived, people born during the millennium who never got saved, He will gather them to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. And so all these people now will come to Jerusalem, surround the city to declare war against God and war against His people, and God's going to send fire down from heaven and God's going to destroy them. It's interesting, I received an email the other day, one of the best questions I've gotten in a long time. A fellow in our church said, John, why does everybody call the Battle of Armageddon the final battle? He said, actually, the final battle is right here when uh, at the end of the millennium, Satan gets this group to try to turn against God and God destroys them. I said, I've always wondered the same question. Why is the battle of Armageddon called the final battle? Why do theologians say it that way? And here's what I said to him. I said, my understanding is that theologians are thinking that the battle of Armageddon is the last battle where there will be two opposing armies fighting each other. The Antichrist and his army, Jesus and his army. Here, there, there are not two opposing armies. Satan will go out and deceive all these people. He will gather them to Jerusalem to try to destroy the people of God, and God's just going to send down fire from heaven on them. So I think most theologians are saying this is more of a judgment than it is a battle. Nonetheless, it's interested. But the point I'm making is environment itself doesn't change a person. Think about guard, uh, of Adam and Eve. They lived in a perfect environment. They're in the Garden of Eden, and yet they sin. So environment doesn't change a person. Fourth thing I would say is this. Education doesn't change a person. Now let me give you a verse. We looked at it last week. But in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 9, it says that during the millennium, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isn't that an interesting phrase, as the waters cover the sea? How do waters cover the sea? I thought the sea is all waters. Well, it is. So when it says, as the, as the waters cover the sea, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. What does it mean? It means that during the millennium, everybody will have perfect knowledge of God, perfect knowledge of truth, perfect knowledge of what is right and, and what is wrong. And so there will be no shortage of knowledge at this point in, in future history. And it says to me that education doesn't change a person. It doesn't. I mean, education is important. We should all, whether it's formally or informally, learn as much as we can. But education itself uh, doesn't change somebody. You just be a smart uh, a, a smart person who's unsaved, a smart person, I guess, humanly speaking, I don't, I don't know if there's any such thing really as a smart person who's unsaved, because if they were smart, they would get saved, right? In fact, the Bible says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And so somebody who says, I'm too smart to believe in God, they may be too smart to believe in God in their own mind, but God calls that person a fool. Now, you and I can't call them a fool. We're not supposed to call people a fool, but God can. God do whatever he wants to do. And God said, the person who doesn't believe in me is a fool. And so education, as important as it is, education has never changed anybody. I'll tell you something else, it won't change a person. Outward conformity. Just doing what everybody else is doing. Just doing the right thing. During the millennium, these people who will be actually unsaved, did you know what? They won't look unsaved. They won't act unsaved. People will just assume that they are saved because outwardly they will be conforming to the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's going to have perfect peace on the earth. They're not going to be revolting against Jesus while the devil's in that pit. They're going to be conforming and doing whatever it is Jesus tells them to do. But outward conformity, going through the motions, 
going through the religious ritual, taking the communion, taking the sacrament. If you grew up in a church that teaches of the sacraments, being baptized, going through the outward motions never changed a single soul. God is not interested in outward conformity. God is not interested in going through the motions. Jesus said uh, in in Matthew chapter 15, quoting from the Old Testament, he said to those religious people of his day, he said, Isaiah was right when he talked about you people. He said, you honor me with your lips. But your heart is far from me. What would Jesus say in a setting like ours today? In any, any Christian church, if he, if he had that same bone to pick with us, he would say, I was in the service. I was watching you sing the songs. I saw you bow your head in prayer. But you're doing it outwardly. You, you've come to church outwardly. You're doing what you're doing because it's what you're supposed to be doing. It is the right, respectable thing to do. But your heart is a thousand miles from here. Your heart's not on me. Your heart's not in my word. Your heart's not in my will for your life. You're just going through the motions. You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. I believe Jesus would say that to many of us even today. Outward conformity doesn't change a person. I'll tell you something else. One person can't change another person. During the millennium, I can't stress this strongly enough, you're going to have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Elijah, Elisha, all the prophets, Ezekiel, Daniel, living on this earth, all the apostles, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, all the godly people from all the ages. You would think that these people who are born into the millennium, who, who have, are not saved, would look at the lives of, of, of these great saints of God and that they would get saved. But it doesn't work that way. Why? Because one person cannot change another person. They will be able to look at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the others, and yet just because they see their lives, uh, that, that, won't, that won't change them. And I'll tell you something else. A person can't even change himself. Person can't change himself. Let me give you a scripture. Jeremiah chapter 13 and verse 23. Listen to this question. Can a leopard change its spots? No. A leopard can't change its spots. And God is saying, just as a leopard cannot change its spots, a person cannot change himself or herself. So listen to what I've said. We're talking about today why some people never change. Whatever, there's something in their life and they never change. Why don't they change? Listen, let's just review what I've said. Punishment doesn't change a person. Time doesn't change a person. Environment doesn't change a person. Education doesn't change a person. Outward conformity doesn't change a person. One person can't change another person, and a person can't even change himself. And that's why I'm saying many people, most people, never change. Now write this next one down. Only God can change a person. Only God can change a person. You can't change yourself, and I can't change myself. We can clean up on the outside. We can do better. We can have more willpower and self-control, but there's no real change that has taken place if that's all there is. Let me give you a couple of scriptures. In Psalm 51 and in verse number 10, David said after he had committed adultery and murder, felt awfully about it, convicted, prayed to God, he said, create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a right spirit within me. Only God can change us. David is asking God now to make him new. 
Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. You see, today you have to identify whatever it is in your life that you want changed. And you take that to God, and you pray what David prayed. God, change me. Let me give you another scripture. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 26. God said, I will put a new heart in you. I will put a new spirit in you. And so that's what God's saying that he will do. And that's our greatest need. It is that we have a new heart, that we be changed from the inside out. So I want to make three statements here today. Here you are, whether it's an addiction, maybe it's something that some people wouldn't even identify as sin. It is sin, but it's it's a more respectable sin. Maybe you say, no, John, for me, it's not an addiction, or for me, it's not bad language, or for me, it's not sporadic church attendance. No, for me, it's, it's not. Th- for me, it's a spirit of worry. For me, it's a spirit of fear. For me, it is a spirit of anxiety. For me, it is, uh, it is, this, it is this oppressive, depressing cloud that has landed on me and got me down in the doldrums, and I want that to be changed. Well, let me tell you something. God can change it, but let me make three statements. In order to be changed, whatever it is today that you say, I wish this part of me was different. I wish this was different. I wish this part of me was different. I wish I could change in this area. Let me ask, how many of you listening to me today would say, John, while you've been talking about this, I have identified at least one area in my life that I wish was different, that I wish if I could mash a button and say, presto, I wish could be changed. Just raise your hand. Just one here. Hey, that's all of us. Now, if you're sitting next to somebody who didn't raise their hand, I'm really concerned about, about this issue. Now, we all, whether you raise your hand or not, I think most everybody raised their hand, but we all, I cannot, I would put up two hands. I say, you know what? Yes, there are some things that I, that I would like, some little quirks I have or things I might tend to worry about. Yes, while God's brought me a long way, I, I have room to improve and I want there to be even further change. So number one, I'm telling you how to be changed. Number one, we have to want to change. And I said that earlier, and I'm saying it again now. We have to want to change. You have, you know, you have to have a hunger. I'm reading just the other day in Psalm 42, and the psalmist said, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's something about having a hunger, having a thirst, having a desire for truth, for change, for godliness, for wholeness, for completeness. If we have that desire, God honors that. God said, you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart. I look back on a season in my life, in my college years, in my seminary years, in my young adult years, where I was plagued, troubled about doubting my salvation. And it was my Achilles heel. It caused me great trouble until I got that settled. But I'll say this in my defense. At least when I was struggling, I was struggling. At least when I was unsure, I was seeking. I was reading everything I could read. I was searching God's Word. I was talking to pastors, talking to seminary professors, listening to preaching. I was seeking. I was searching. I was hungry. I was thirsty. And what did God do? God honored that promise. It said, when you seek me, you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart. I'll tell you this. I stand before you today by the grace of God, preach to you with a full assurance of my own salvation, 
And one of the reasons I have that assurance is that God gave me a hunger and a thirst and a desire to reach that place of assurance. I did seek, I did search, and God revealed truth. God honored that search because he knew I was searching with all my heart. And so for you, it may not be assurance of salvation. It may be one of these other things I've mentioned or something I've not thought to mention. But I'm saying to you, if you will be hungry about that, if you will be serious about that, if you will refuse, as it were, to give rest to your eyes until you get that matter resolved, God will honor that search and you can be set free. But you got to have that want to. Number two thing, first, we have to want to be changed. Number two, we have to ask to be changed. We have to ask, David, create in me a clean heart, oh God. What was David saying? David was saying the same thing Paul said in the New Testament. I'm convinced that in me, nothing good dwells. And I'm asking you, God, to change me. I don't need you to take my sinful, vile, wicked heart and tweak it. I need you to take my sinful, vile, wicked heart out and give me a heart transplant and put a new heart in me. And so we have to not only want to be changed, we have to ask. What did Jesus say? You have not because you ask not. Ask, Jesus said, and you will receive. Seek, he said, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. And so we have to ask. Why do we have times of prayer in a service like this? So that you can ask, so that you can pray, and so that you can seek divine intervention. And then number three thing I would say is we have to be willing to be changed. We have to be willing to be changed. In other words, God says, okay, he said to that man in John 5, Pool of Bethesda, paralyzed 38 years, do you want to be made whole? I'm sure that man looked up at Jesus and said, what do I want? Yeah, I want to be made whole. Jesus knew after asking that, well, Jesus knew before he asked the question. He just wanted to hear that man deal with this issue. Jesus said to that man, take up your mat and walk out of here. So what was that man doing? He was willing to do whatever it was that Jesus asked him to do. And in that case, he asked him to take up his mat and walk. And so as you think about that area in your life, worry, doubt, fear, addiction, whatever. You say, I want this to be changed. I don't want to take this into the, into the rest of my life. Friend, I believe with all my heart, one of the reasons God has allowed this pandemic on the earth is so that we can deal with things that we may never have dealt with had the pandemic not come on the earth. We were in staff meeting the other day, and I made the statement to the staff, and I, I've thought this since the pandemic began. I said, you know, I know we at the church, just like everybody else, we want things to get back to normal. That's what everybody's saying. I want it to get back to normal. I want to be able to get back to normal. Get back. And I think we all know what we mean when we say that. But I've thought that through. You know what? While you and I may want things to get back to normal, God doesn't want things to get back to normal. Do you think God would have allowed the world to have been affected and to a large extent infected by a virus? If his only intention was so we could get back to normal? I mean, we were already normal before it happened, right? I mean, you think God is going to let the world go through this so we can get back to where we were before we started? No. God is saying, that was your normal. 
This is the interruption, and what I'm wanting to do during the interruption is to get you to a new normal, a better normal, so you will be a new person, and you won't carry with you some of the junk that you had back before this thing happened to the earth. And so today, I'm asking you this. Do you want to change? Are you willing to ask God to change you? And number three, are you willing to change? Because if you are, let's go back to the very first statement I made this sermon. People don't change. You know what? I stand by that statement. From a biblical perspective, people don't change. How would you say it biblically, John? Here's how I would say it. People get changed. People are changed. If people could change, we won't even need God. Just go out and change. But we do need God, we can't change, and we need Him to change us from the inside out. And so, Father, today, I think about the devil here, and Lord, we think about after a thousand years in a pit, when he got out, he was the same rascal he was before he went in, doing the same old thing. And God, he never did change. And as a result, he's going to end up in hell forever, because he never wanted to change. Even today, the devil has no desire to worship you. He's certainly not going to ask to be changed. He's not willing to be changed. But God, we are. God, we don't want to be like the devil. We want, to be, we want to be different people. And I'm asking you today to change us from the inside out. Now, virtually every person in this room, when I said, how many of you have one thing you would like to see changed? Most all of you raised your hand. Right now, ask God to change that thing about you. God, change this, this smart aleck way I have, this sarcasm I have, this bitter spirit that I have, this holier than thou, me thinking I'm somehow better than everybody. God, change that. God, this addiction to alcohol, God, this addiction to cocaine, this addiction, God, to heroin, this, this addic- God, this addiction, this pornography that I'm struggling, God, this gambling problem. God, this obsession with what does everybody think about me that's made me insecure, It's made me compromise my convictions just to try to be with a cool crowd. Let me tell you what, they're not cool. They may think they're cool. They may have you thinking they're cool. God doesn't call them cool, not if they're not going his way. Some today are like I was. You say, John, I'll tell you what I wish I could change. I wish I could know for sure that I am saved. You can. And you don't have to struggle with it as long as I do because I can tell you in a sentence or two what I was slow processing in my own mind. And that is this. If you will ask Jesus to save you and then if you will trust Him to do it, you will be saved. And if you'll trust Him, you'll be sure that you're saved. We've seen people saved in just about every service we've had since we came back this, from this pandemic, from, from not having services. Pray this prayer. If you want to know for sure, pray this. Say, Lord Jesus, I struggle and struggle. I wonder and wonder, but I want to know that I'm saved. I ask you now to come into my heart. Forgive my sins and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me, and I trust you to do it. I trust you, Lord Jesus, to do it. Now, <clears throat> This morning, if you prayed that prayer, 
I'm going to, we've got our heads bowed and eyes closed, but I want to know what's happening in this room. If you just prayed that prayer, asking Jesus to save you, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. We had six or seven people two weeks ago do this. If you've prayed that prayer right now, would you just stand to your feet so I can see who you are? I'm going to give you 30 seconds. There's one in the upper level. Thank you, sir. God bless you. Thank you so much. God bless you. Who else in this service? Thank you. There's another two right here in the 9 o'clock service have prayed to be saved. God bless you. That took tremendous courage. 15 seconds. Who else would say, I have asked Jesus to come into my life. He has changed me. I'm willing to do what he said do. And he said, confess me before men. And as you stand, I'm the first person you're confessing Jesus to. Five more seconds. Thank you so much. Right here in the center section. God bless you. Ten seconds. Anybody else would say this morning, I just prayed that prayer, John. And I'm willing. That man took up his mat. I'm willing to stand up right now in this church and let it be known that Jesus Christ, five seconds, Jesus Christ is living in my heart. Is there another? Is there someone else? Let's just, with our heads bowed, let's thank the Lord and thank for three three people in this service have been saved. Father, I pray that you would seal these three, or maybe there are more, maybe there's some I've missed, seal these these people in their hearts. And as they go from here today, help them to know they're not the same person they were when they walked in. Jesus Christ is living in their hearts. Sins forgiven. Eternity settled. And they're a new person. Now, for those who stood having prayed that prayer, and for others here who would say, John, I've already prayed that prayer, but I want to join this church. We've had many people join this church during the pandemic. And so today you say, I want to put my life in this church. We're going to ask you and those three who just stood to pray at the end of this service, when you walk out of this room, turn to the right and just keep walking. That hall will kind of curve to the right. And down there on the right is a room called the parlor. It is the church parlor. And in that parlor, ministers are there right now. And they have masks on, and they're not going to make you sick, and everybody's going to be socially distanced. But we're asking you to go to that room and let them give you some literature that will help you grow and take your next step. Let them pray with you and uh, answer any questions you may have. You won't be there five minutes, but it would help us. You say, John, I don't know if it'll help me. Well, I think it will help you, but it would help us. And I'm asking you to go to that room today. Father, it's been good to be in your house. I thank you for everyone who's here. Seal this message to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. And all the people said, Amen.